Hey, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. And at our church, we talk a lot about wanting to be a part of restoring faith in Jesus and the church. So we want you to know, wherever you find yourself on your spiritual journey, whether you're deconstructing or reconstructing, whether you're disentangling, doubting, rebuilding, no matter where you are, we want you to know that you are not alone. And we want to be a support for you as you journey down this road of faith. So if you have questions or you need support, we would love to chat with you. You can reach out to us through our website at restoreaustin.org. And we hope you enjoy this week's message. So this past week, we celebrated what would have been the 94th birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and you might not know it from the widespread admiration that he engenders today, but he was not well liked for the vast majority of his life. In fact, in 1968, the year of his murder, 75% of Americans disapproved of Dr. King, his views, his actions, his behaviors. That might be shocking to us today, but when you kind of strip away all the like whitewashing and sterilization and out of context quotes we read last weekend, it's easy to see why he was so disliked. See, Dr. King was a radical. He was a revolutionary. And along with other leaders of the civil rights movement, he was turning the world upside down. But Dr. King was also committed to Jesus Christ, a Baptist pastor by vocation. He worked hard to conform every single thing he did to the way of Jesus. You see, he wanted to help God's kingdom become a reality on earth as it is in heaven. And that's why he talks so much about making the world a place of goodness and abundance and equality, not just for some people, but for all people. And Dr. King famously called this idea the beloved community, the beloved community. And he said that it was the end goal of all his justice work. So for Dr. King and so many others who continue his work today, the goal is not power for the sake of power or even justice for the sake of justice. The goal has always been the beloved community, a place where God, humanity, and creation can coexist in perfect love and flourishing. In a 1966 article for the Christian Century magazine, Dr. King said it this way, I do not think of political power as an end, neither do I think of economic power as an end. They are both ingredients in the, in the objective we seek in life, and I think the end of that objective is a truly brotherly society, the creation of the beloved community. See, Martin Luther King Jr.'s goal was to help usher in a community where absolutely everyone is included. Let me say that again. His goal was to usher in a community where absolutely everyone is included in the love and the fullness of life that God desires for all of humanity. But he knew that some radical and revolutionary things needed to happen before we could arrive at the beloved community. Another person who knew this is a guy by the name of Jesus. I actually think the only person more sterilized and whitewashed than Dr. King is Jesus Christ. Jesus was a radical. He was a revolutionary. His first recorded words in the book of Mark are, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand. You see, just that word kingdom there and his use of it was incredibly radical in the first century Roman world. Jesus was claiming that he had come to usher in the kingdom of God, and that was a declaration that the Roman Empire was not of God, and that it was on its way out. 
And with that radical statement, Jesus launched his revolutionary ministry in which he healed the sick and fed the hungry and set slaves free and brought justice to the oppressed and the marginalized, even forgave people's sins. But quite possibly the most revolutionary thing about Jesus' time on earth was his radical inclusion. His radical inclusion. In a wonderful piece about the life of Christ for the New York Times, Peter Werner writes this, first century Christians weren't prepared for what a truly radical and radically inclusive figure Jesus was. And neither are today's Christians. We want to tame and domesticate who he was, but Jesus' life and ministry don't really allow for it. He shattered barrier after barrier. Peter's right. Jesus was radically inclusive. We are in the middle of a teaching series called Wholehearted Postures, and it's all about how Christians, as we, we as followers of Christ, are called to show up in the world, the postures we should choose to inhabit. And each Sunday, we're looking at a different posture that Jesus demonstrated and then talking about how we, too, should demonstrate that same posture. Things like humility, faith, tenderness, discernment, courage, and joy. Today, we are talking about having a Christ-like posture of radical inclusion. This posture is demonstrated by Jesus throughout his life, but we're going to focus on one story this morning, as we usually do. And it's a story of the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15. I love this passage so much, I'm not going to apologize for it. I have preached it multiple times. But I really don't like the name that we've given it, prodigal son. Because prodigal son, it really refers to the younger brother in the story, right? When we think of it. And it causes us to assume that prodigal means like wayward or disobedient, right? But that's not what the word means at all. I don't know if you knew this. Prodigal actually means recklessly extravagant. Recklessly extravagant. And all three main characters in the story are prodigal in their own way. The younger son, who we already talked about, is prodigal in his pursuit of pleasure, right? He leaves home, he goes out into the far country, he parties, he does all this crazy stuff. He's prodigal in that pursuit of pleasure. The older son, though, he was prodigal in his own way, in legalism and morality. He was recklessly extravagant in trying to do exactly what he was supposed to do all the time and thinking that it would lead to favor from the father, favor from the community, and favor from God. But I actually think that the father in the story is the most prodigal of all because he is recklessly extravagant in his love for his kids. Just recklessly extravagant. Before we go any further, it's vitally important for us to understand that this passage in Luke 15 makes clear that the father in the story represents God. That's clearly who the father is supposed to be. It's also important to understand that the entirety of scripture makes the claim that Jesus is God. This has been the historic Christian teaching for 2,000 plus years. Jesus is God in the flesh, humanity fully, divine fully. This means that Jesus is the clearest picture we have of who God is. And, as, and, and if we want to know what God is like, we need to look no further than the person and work of Jesus. So the posture of the Father in this story is the posture of Jesus, and as we said throughout the whole series, the postures Jesus chose to inhabit must also be the postures that we choose to inhabit. Does that make sense? The father in the story is God. Jesus is God. We are to emulate Jesus, right? We are to inhabit the postures of the father in the story. 
Before we dive in, I have to set the scene for us because it's going to be really important when we get to the end. So when Jesus tells this incredible story, it actually isn't in the flow of his normal public speaking. Jesus traveled all over the place, teaching crowds that ranged from a handful of people to more than 20,000. And during these times, Jesus told a bunch of stories like this one, but he actually isn't in the middle of teaching when he tells this story. He's in the middle of eating. In fact, Jesus isn't even the first one to speak in the passage. The story is told by Jesus in response to the accusation of someone else. Luke chapter 15, you can be there if you want, you can turn there if you'd like to uh, follow along. The verses will also be on the screen. Luke 15, starting in verse 1. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and even eats with them. See, sharing a meal with someone society deems unworthy is a pretty big deal even in our context today, right? But in the first century Jewish culture, it was much, much bigger. Sharing a meal is entering into covenant friendship with the people at the table. That was the culture that they inhabited. I love how Malcolm Smith puts it. He says, to eat with someone was called table fellowship and meant that the persons eating at the table now stood in covenant solidarity with each other. For Jesus to eat with tax collectors was not a social blunder done in ignorance. It was not a political gaffe of a newcomer to religious politics. He ate with them intentionally in a deliberate public act, sending a clear message that he knew could not be misunderstood by anyone. He was announcing that he was the friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is why some of the religious leaders scoffed at Jesus as they watched him eat. They couldn't believe that he would knowingly and deliberately enter into covenant friendship with those they considered unclean. Now, I want to point out something else because I believe it's really important. It's easy for us to pile on the religious leaders here and in other places as like, oh, they're just jerks. They're just bigoted. They're the worst. And sometimes that's fair. They were kind of being jerks. (laughs) But in other cases, a lot of times they were just following what they believed the Old Testament law to teach. For instance, stealing was against the Old Testament law. Stealing from someone without going through the ritual cleansing process of giving it back, making restitution, doing all of those things, meant that the thief was unclean. And according to the law, you weren't to associate with unclean people. Tax collectors in the first century were all thieves. They were Jewish folks who worked for the Romans to collect taxes from other Jewish folks, but they would always collect more than the Romans required, giving them a little bit extra on the side. They stole money. So if Jesus is eating with tax collectors and tax collectors are considered unclean according to the law, what does that mean? It means that Jesus is purposefully breaking a religious law to include people. Here's Malcolm Smith again. By sitting at the table with them, Jesus was refusing to label them, accepting each one of them as they were. He was standing in solidarity with them, declaring a covenant of friendship. He sat there by choice and so accepted the shame, rejection, and hatred directed to them as his own. Sitting with them plainly said that he would go to any length and pay any cost to embrace them where they were. Jesus, God in the flesh, will go to any length and pay any cost to include people in his family, including taking our sin and shame on as his own. We see this most clearly, right, in the death on the cross and the resurrection from the grave. But we also see it throughout Jesus' life on earth. But the religious leaders watching, they don't understand this. 
Just like many religious leaders today, they believe the only way to be included by God was to follow all the rules perfectly and to make sure everyone else did too. So Jesus knows this. He decides to tell them a story. Luke 15, verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. See, he was prodigal. This is just the beginning of the story for the younger brother, right? He squanders all of his wealth. A famine comes. He finds himself unhoused, unable to find food. Uh, He is like really struggling so bad that he like rents himself out to this farmer and he's feeding pigs and he's so hungry that he longs to be able to eat the things that he's feeding the pigs. That's where he's at, struggling, hurting. So he decides to go home. Apologized to his father. Luke 15, 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. He goes on to say that he put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, the robe of the family around him. That he fully and completely welcomed him back in. That when the son tried to apologize, he couldn't even get it out. The dad interrupted him. He said, no, 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 no. Kill the fatted calf. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. He was home. And that was all the father cared about. The story is incredible for so many reasons, right? There's, there's so many prodigal things that the father does in this part. You see, he must have been waiting and watching every day, right? Because he saw his son while he was what? Still a long way off. So this was a wealthy landowner. This was someone who had business to manage, things to do, but he had devoted at least a part of every day to standing and waiting and watching for his son. Also, men in this society, they didn't run, especially men of means. They wore big robes. They had heavy jewelry. It was very taboo for them to move at a quick pace. It was also very difficult. So you can just imagine the dad maybe tossing his jewelry off, hiking up his robes, right? And he's just heading off toward his son, looking ridiculous. But does he care? No, because his son's home. Robe, ring, shoes, all of these are reinstatements into the family. You see, the ring was a signet ring used to sign things. It's basically his dad giving him the credit card back and saying, whatever you need, you put it on the family tab. You're home. The robe, he was fully back in. The shoes, all of it. He, he was re-entering completely back into the father's family. Not because he got the apology out. Not because he made amends for all the things that were wrong, but because the father was there and waiting for him. But it gets even better when we understand the context. You see, in that culture, it was customary for the town elders to go out to the city gate and confront an estranged child who was trying to come back in a disgraceful, after leaving in a disgraceful way. They would often stop the young person at the town gate and break a pot or a bowl, pottery, in front of them. And it symbolized the brokenness of the relationship that not only they once had with the family, but with the whole community. That broken pottery was a legal act of banishment from the community. This kind of explains, right, why the father is waiting and watching for the son each day. Why he ran to him. He wants to beat all the other elders to his son so that he can reinstate him into the family before the other ones can banish him from the community. The father breaks the rules to forgive his son and welcome him home. 
The relationship is more important than the rules. But it gets even better. Not only does the father break the rules for his son, he actually takes all of the son's sin and shame upon himself. You see, when the younger son disgraced his father and turned his back on the community, his sin and shame were his alone, right? He took that on him. And when he returned home, he was ready to face the consequences of his sin, to bear the weight of his shame, but his father steps in instead. In the eyes of the community, by running to him, hugging him, reinstating him into the family, the the father is voluntarily bearing all of the consequences once owed solely to his son. He's saying, these are mine too. Sound familiar? That's exactly what Jesus is doing at the table with the tax collectors and sinners as he tells this story. This is radical inclusion, my friends. And with that, the younger son is once again a part of the family, but we often end the story there, right? But it doesn't end there. There's another son, the older son, The older son is out working in the fields, and when he hears this ruckus, like this party, this thing going on, he's like, what is happening? He walks in, he sees that his younger brother, who has disgraced the family, is home and is being welcomed in. Remember how he reacts? Luke 11, 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in to the party. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Now, what I want to show you here that's really important to understand is that culturally, what the older son does in this moment is every bit as shameful as what the younger son has done. He will not go into the party. He is showing his father up at the biggest occasion that his dad has ever thrown. He's saying, I'm not going to be a part of this. But guess what? The father does the exact same thing for the older son that he does for the younger son. He should have told a servant to go out and tell the older son, get in here right now. You're a disgrace. Come inside. But he doesn't. He goes out there himself. Again, taking the sin and the shame upon himself in order to fully include the older son in the family. The younger son right? He accepts the father's offer, but Jesus ends the story before we know for sure what happens with the older one. We don't know if he ends up going into the party or not, but we do know that the father has given him an open invitation. And it's the same open invitation the religious leaders listening have to come and sit at the table with Jesus and the tax collectors and the sinners. We see throughout scripture that radical inclusion of all people is a core value in God's kingdom. In the Old Testament, God makes the same promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, some version of, through you and your children, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Not some people, not some nations, all people, all nations. Radical inclusion. And through the first church in the New Testament, God continually breaks every barrier that people try to use to keep folks out of God's family. You see, people said only able-bodied folks should be included. God says, no, everyone is included. And in Acts 3, he uses Peter to heal disease and share salvation with those who are disabled. 
People said only wealthy folks should be included. And God says, no, everyone is included. In Acts 6, he uses Stephen to give food to the hungry and share salvation with the poor. People said only folks in the sexual majority should be included. God says, no, everyone is included. And in Acts 8, he sends Philip to share salvation with and then baptize a sexual minority called the Ethiopian eunuch. People said only men should be included. God says, no, everyone is included. And in Acts 16, he uses Paul to share salvation with a woman named Lydia. And Lydia would go on to start the very first church in Europe inside her home. People said it was only for certain races and ethnicities and nationalities to be included. And God says, no, everyone is included. In Acts 1.8, Jesus sent out the disciples to the very ends of the earth so that they could share his love and grace and hope and all-inclusive invitation to the family with every tribe, tongue, and nation. Radically inclusive. This is who God is and who God will always be. One of my favorite quotes of all time is from my friend Carlos Rodriguez, and he says, as soon as you draw a line to exclude people, Jesus goes to the other side of that line with them and invites you to join him there every time. I love that because Jesus doesn't trade one exclusionary stance for another, right? When you draw a line to exclude someone, he doesn't go to the other side of that line and say, I'm with them, you're not welcome. He doesn't trade one exclusionary stance for another. Just like the father inviting the older son back into the party, Jesus inviting the religious leaders to sit down at the table with him, God chooses to stand with the marginalized, yes, but he invites all people to join him there. Everyone, absolutely everyone. So what does that mean for us? Practically. Well, I think it depends on where you find yourself today. So if you're here and you've been told that something precludes you from sitting at Jesus' table, that you don't have a place in God's family because of something about you, who you are, what you've done, how God's made you, where you are on this spiritual journey, this story means that you were lied to when you were told that. Because no matter who you are, what you've done, where you are on this spiritual journey, there is space for you at Jesus' table. There is a chair with your name on it. All you have to do is humbly accept that invitation and sit down. Now, maybe that's not where you are. Maybe you're someone here and you don't really think you need to sit down. You feel good about where you are. You think you're just fine without Jesus and anyone else. This story encourages you to stop living under the false premise that you are self-sufficient. Because you are not. We all need Jesus and each other. We all need love and care and compassion. We all need a seat at the table. And then lastly, if you've already sat down, you're one of those maybe tax collectors or notorious sinners that's who I always identified with in these stories. This story shows us that it's our job to make a space at the table for absolutely anyone who wants to sit with Jesus. If you're already seated, you start pulling out chairs for other people. That's your job. That's our job. 
Here at Restore, our vision is to be a place where anyone has a seat at the table and everyone experiences the extravagant love of Jesus because, y'all, we know it's not our table. It's Jesus' table. And he decides who sits at it. And he has already been incredibly clear that whoever wants a seat at the table has one. But it isn't an easy calling. I get that. In fact, sometimes it can be really difficult. Now, I'm a pastor who does my best to tell y'all the truth, to be honest, even when it might hurt. So let me tell you some truth that I think we all need to hear right now. It might hurt a little bit. Most of us are really good at including younger brothers here at Restore. I love that about us. We're really good at it. It's beautiful and it's Christ-like. But younger brothers are not the only ones who need radical inclusion. We might be willing to run out and show grace to the younger brother, but are we willing to go out and show grace to the older brothers too? The legalists, the moralists. Are you willing to have a conversation with a Bible thumper? Are you willing to actually listen to the story of a holier-than-thou legalist? Are you willing to demonstrate a posture of radical inclusion to older brothers too? Because they need Jesus and community just like everybody else. See, the Christian life doesn't end when you take your seat at the table. That's just the beginning. Our job is to invite absolutely everyone to sit with Jesus. That doesn't mean that when they sit down that they don't change, they don't grow, that maybe they don't leave some of these toxic and harmful things behind, right? It doesn't mean that we don't even encourage them to do that. But it starts with walking out and engaging with them, just like the father. Meeting the younger son on the road, going out the back door to the older son. Meeting them where they are. Our job is to invite absolutely everyone to sit with Jesus. It's not an easy calling, but it's a worthwhile one. I love how Father Greg Boyle puts it. He says, certainly the compassionate heart of Jesus was about healing when he bumped into lepers, but really it was about inclusion. The healing was secondary. What was ultimately treasonous about Jesus was his inclusivity. He ignored boundaries. Jesus plowed right through them. Authentic Christianity never circles the wagons. It always widens the circle. Oh, I love that. Authentic Christianity never circles the wagons. It always widens the circle. Authentic Christianity is radically inclusive. Unless you think that Father Greg is being hyperbolic when he says that Jesus' radical inclusion was ultimately treasonous, I want to show you something. Did you know that religious leaders used to call Jesus, quote, a glutton and a drunkard? Have you ever heard that? Nod with me if you've heard that. Yeah? because of who he included at the table. That's why he called him that. Here's a verse. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. If you've read through the accounts of Jesus' life in the New Testament or have been in church for a while, you may have heard that before, the glutton and the drunkard thing. But did you know that calling someone a glutton and a drunkard is actually a legal charge 
from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Here's what it says, 21, 18 through 21. If somebody has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. And they shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is what? A glutton and a drunkard. Then all of the men of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. Bet you didn't know that was in there, did you? By referring to Jesus as a glutton and a drunkard, the religious leaders were calling for him to be stoned. All because of who he shared his table with. His radical inclusion was treasonous. Now, listen, I don't think that any of us will face death for our radical inclusion but it'll cost us. The way we have practiced radical inclusion here at Restore has already cost us. Money and partnerships, even a denomination. But the cost of excluding people, of othering people, it's so much higher. It's so much higher. Because exclusion leads to hate and hate leads to violence. We woke up this morning to the news of another mass shooting, at least 10 killed and 10 wounded after someone opened fire at a Lunar New Year celebration in a primarily Asian American community in California. Now, I don't know why the shooting happened. I don't know the motivation behind it yet, but a recent study showed that 76% of AAPI folks, Asian American and Pacific Islanders, have experienced hate crimes during the pandemic. Three out of four. Exclusion leads to hate, and hate leads to violence. That is why Jesus is so committed to radical inclusion. That is why his people, us, must be too. We must be. Here at Restore, we have decided that we'd rather be excluded because of who we include than included because of who we exclude. We'd rather be kept out because of who we welcome in than welcomed in because of who we keep out not because it's cool or because it's convenient, but because it is the way of Jesus. And the cost of being radically inclusive is nothing compared to the cost of excluding people, of othering people. You threw me off with that clapping, I'm not gonna lie. I appreciate it though. In times when being radically inclusive has cost me, I think about the one whose name I claim. I think about Jesus. I think about how it cost him too. But even when he was persecuted and punished and ultimately put to death, he did not change his posture of radical inclusion. As he breathed his last breath on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Radically inclusive even to the point of death. I also think about Martin Luther King Jr. It cost him too. He died fighting for justice and inclusion and the dream of a beloved community. So in addition to all these words from Jesus that we've been studying, I wanna leave you with a few words from Dr. King too. This is from a sermon he preached just a few months before his murder, and it's been a constant source of inspiration and encouragement for me as I seek to embody the postures of Jesus in radically revolutionary ways. 
So I'm going to read it. The words will be on the screen. You can follow along. You can just close your eyes and let it wash over you, whatever you want to do. But here's what he said in the sermon just a few months before he was killed. You may be 38 years old, as I happen to be. And one day, some great opportunity stands before you and calls upon you to stand for some great principle, some great issue, some great cause. But you refuse to do it because you are afraid. You refuse to do it because you want to live longer. You're afraid that you will lose your job or you're afraid that you'll be criticized or that you will lose your popularity, so you refuse to take a stand. Well, you may go on and live until you are 90, but you are just as dead at 38 as you would be at 90. And the cessation of breathing in your life is but the belated announcement of an earlier death of the spirit. You died when you refused to stand up for right. You died when you refused to stand up for truth. You died when you refused to stand up for justice. And I would add that you died when you refused to stand up for people who were being excluded and marginalized and pushed to the side. This is our job. This is our job. And I think it makes all the difference. I think it can change the world. I do. If we would just radically and sacrificially love and include every single person that we talk to, if we would remember that everybody has a story, that everybody's walking through hard things, that everybody needs a friend, that everybody needs Jesus, that everybody needs help, needs a hand out and a hand up and somebody to hold on to when things are hard, if we would just remember that, practice it, everything would change. Let us be known as people who have a posture of radical inclusion, of people who go out to younger brothers and older brothers and everybody in between and invite them to sit down at Jesus' table and to be transformed by his love. Because that's the way of Jesus. Let's pray. God, you are so good. You are so loving, you are so merciful, you are so radically inclusive. You break down every barrier, you kick down every wall, you come after us with your love. You refuse to let any man-made structures or exclusionary tactics stop you from welcoming absolutely everyone who wants a seat to sit at your table. God, I pray that those would not be stories that we just read about, characteristics that we just learn about, that they would be postures that we embody, that we would choose the way of Jesus, the way of radical love and inclusion. That just as you have pursued us with your love, we would love others the same way. that just as you have included absolutely everyone, that we would seek to include absolutely everyone too. Make this who we are, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.